Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks for joining me. Missed you last week. Sorry about that, but back with a good program today. Before we get started, want to discuss some, and I'm using air quotes here, news from yesterday. But yesterday, a singer by the name of Ricardo Lobo put out a narco ballad on a YouTube channel known as Doble R Records. The name of the ballad was Ya Se Fue, which means he's gone or is already gone, depending on the translation. The importance of this narco ballad is that it alleges that El Mencho has passed away. He's died. Now, no proof of that, right? But we all know that, um, or a lot of us know that sometimes narco ballads uh, relay messages that they have um, tentacles that reach out at times to cartels or cartel affiliated people. And so sometimes narco ballads could be used as a way to break news. But as I say, no corroboration, no verification at all. Plus, El Mencho, given his health problems, you know, the rumors of his death <laughs> have come up before and been proven wrong before. So, Narco Ballad says El Mencho has passed, no verification. But if he has, it'll be very interesting to see what happens as far as leadership in CJNG and the long term and even short term future and direction of CJNG. Okay, so that's the quote-unquote news for this morning. Today, we're going to start a two-part discussion of Mr. Juan Ramon Mataballesteros. And we're going to talk about him for a couple of different reasons, other than just the fact that he's an interesting uh, character in, in some of the things that we've talked about over the last year and a half or so. There's really two reasons why I am um, focused on him today. Number one is I have a side project where I'm working on a history of the Mexican cartels. One of the things that has come up in doing this project is starting off with an initial definition of what is a Mexican cartel. How do you define Mexican cartels, what separates a cartel from a group of people uh, that occasionally interact. So that's number one. Number two, in that analysis, many people have said that the Guadalajara narcotics cartel was the first cartel in Mexico. And if you've listened to me at all, you know that I have issues with that characterization of the Guadalajara narcotics cartel for a variety of reasons. One of which is just to note that they were never defined as a cartel really until after the fact. And in, in fact, that nomenclature, Guadalajara narcotics cartel, really was more of a media creature than anything else. Putting that to the side, there are those who say 
that if there was a narcotics cartel, the Guadalajara narcotics cartel, that it was formed by, largely speaking, four people. Miguel Angel Felix Gardo, Rafael Caro Quintero, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, and one Ramon Mataballesteros. Now, as a preview, I don't buy that with respect to Juan Mata, but he's a fascinating character um, and, and a case study, and his relationship with Felix Gallardo is important. So that's why I thought it was worth talking about him. We're going to do it in two parts. So part one today is going to be more factual. We're going to try and walk through his life, some of the things that made him notorious. And then next week, we're going to talk more about his influence, his um, remaining legacy, especially in his native Honduras, uh, and some other issues that go along with that. I also want to note And I've told this story before, kind of my semi-personal connection to Mata. When I was a summer associate in the summer of 1990, I worked at a law law firm in Los Angeles when the Zuno One trial was going on. We've talked about that um, several times. Full disclosure, I was a summer associate. I helped with research, but I was also able to go and sit in on many um, days of proceedings in the trial. And frankly, I can't remember at this point if it was 10 days or 15 days or five days. But I did go several times. And one of the first times I was there, and it might have been the first time, Ed Medvine, our chief counsel, he was the partner in charge of the case. He let me set, sit kind of at the defense tables. And there were a couple of defendants, you know, lawyers and everything else. So anyways, I sat next to Juan Ramon Mataballesteros. And I grew up in Western Colorado, went to Colorado State undergrad, went to Minnesota as a law student. And to say that I was sheltered and naive would be um, an, under, an understatement of great proportions. And so sitting next to Juan Ramon Mataballesteros, about whom I learned a lot, uh, was a, a, a scary moment for me. And Mata didn't, I don't think he ever looked at me. Uh, but if he had, it would have scared me to death. Uh, and so for for those reasons, he has he's left a vivid picture in my mind. I've also done some independent research that we'll probably talk about more next week, talking to some people in Honduras. Uh, there's a recent book in uh, that came out in Honduras talking about the legacy of Matabayastero, so we'll talk about that. So... What do we know about Juan Mata, Juan Ramon Mataballesteros? Well, we know that he um, was born in Honduras, probably in 1945. 
second of four brothers and sisters. The conventional story is that he got his start in crime um, as a pickpocket, a homeless pickpocket, and that in the early 1970s or so, he kind of established himself in what's referred to as the Soto neighborhood, just outside the capital city of uh, of Honduras, and at that time there were medical or there were marijuana dispensaries were operated, and he started working with these dispensaries um, with other kind of marijuana traffickers, and by the time he was in his mid twenties, it's said that he. Uh, had become a very, very powerful distributor in that area. Now, you're going to notice a couple of times in here that the dates don't exactly match. And that's trying to pick threads from different reports about Mata. So, like I say, if the the dates don't sync up perfectly, I understand that. But going again with the best evidence we have... It's also said that at one time he was a smuggler of jewels and he was successful and and, um, became fairly wealthy as a result of that process before he ever got involved in the narcotics trade. In the uh, 70s, he um, continued to work in the trade Uh, And he also had a relationship developed at that time in Colombia. So he worked in the drug trade, shipping cocaine, smuggling it into the United States. And it's said that he served as a hitman in Colombia, which is notable in a few minutes. Um, Because of that experience, he was able to forge a number of connections with traffickers, trafficker groups, um, and what we would call cartels in Colombia, as well as in Mexico. And maybe more importantly, he became closely tied to certain very, very powerful members of the Honduran security apparatus. And we'll talk about that in just a second. By the time the the late 70s came around, he was um, directly involved in transporting cocaine from Colombia to Honduras and then to Mexico. In 1979, there was a military coup in Honduras. And as a result of that coup, a General Paz Garcia came to power. It is said that General Garcia was able to initiate and kind of succeed in the coup because of his financing from Juan Mata Ballesteros. So that meant that by you know, 1979, he had a close ally in General Paz Garcia. He also became 
closely aligned with the head of the Honduran military intelligence. As a result of those two connections, he was, by the early 1980s, um, he was able to have his uh, criminal record purged. He was able to hire as bodyguards Honduran Special Forces troops who had been trained in Israel and and trained by Israeli uh, Special Forces. And it's really said that by the early 1980s, at the latest, he had become virtually untouchable in his country. Now, we're going to go back for just a little bit um, because it's interesting to note that early on, Mata Ballesteros had actually made his way first to Mexico and then later to the United States. And it's said that at one point or another, he worked as a farmhand in Texas and even a grocery clerk in New York City. At some point, as tends to happen, he got connected with groups that were moving contraband and illegal drugs. It is said that he was arrested in Washington, D.C. by a DEA agent with 50 kilos of cocaine at the Dulles International Airport. Now, there are various stories about this. The basic is he um, was caught with cocaine in D.C. in 69 or 70. In either case, somehow he wasn't charged with drug trafficking. Instead, he was sentenced for immigration violations. As a result of those immigration violations, he was housed at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, but he escaped and made his way back to Mexico, which is the place where he really then started his rise and his role in cocaine trafficking. It's also said that he was arrested at least twice in um, Mexico in the 70s, but somehow his connections, um, which were getting deeper and continuing to grow with the Mexican underworld, allowed him to uh, secure his release. It's also said that during this time, the early to mid-1970s, is when Mata met um, Alberto Falcone infamous Cuban trafficker in Mexico. And at that time, he also met Angel Miguel Felix Gallardo. Or Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, sorry. Um, Felix, as we know, uh, you know, by this time was starting to establish himself as a powerful figure in the both marijuana, but also more notably cocaine trade in Mexico. Here's one of the more interesting stories about Mata, one that I was aware of when I was sitting next to him in a federal courtroom in Los Angeles. He became connected with a number of important figures throughout 
Honduras, he being Mata. Both in the military, in the government, and in private business. At one point, he became part of an emerald cocaine and arms smuggling organization run by Mary and Mario Ferrari. Okay. And this network was said to have moved um, drugs, uh, gems, etc., from Colombia where Colombia was kind of a central hub for distribution, but a lot of the product came from throughout South America, but it goes from Colombia into Mexico and then distributed into different places. Um, Mata and Mario Ferrari owned some nightclubs together. They, the Ferraris owned car dealerships, a beer company that was actually located on, in the, uh, on the property of the central military prison in uh, uh, Honduras. The Ferraris were said to basically have just been able to operate in Honduras with impunity because of their deep military connections. At some point, at some point, the Ferraris and Mata had... um, a dispute. There are different stories. Some say that there was a fight over a drug deal in which Mata felt he'd been tr- been cheated by the Ferraris. In any case, Mata at this point, and this is in about December 1977, more or less, Mata's working in Colombia. He sends his hitmen to go back to Honduras to deal with the Ferraris. But, but he doesn't just have them go kill the Ferraris. No. Instead, his hitmen go to Honduras, kidnap, kidnap the Ferraris, take them back to Colombia, where... Mata Ballesteros reportedly personally oversaw their torture. The Ferraris were then flown back to Honduras where they were killed and the bodies were found um, on a w- or in a well on a farm in the outskirts of, of the capital city uh, about six months later. That story is important for two reasons. One is it shows you know, the brutality of Mata Ballesteros, especially when you know he thinks that he's been um, done wrong. And because it shows his relationship to the military in Honduras. Here's how. After the Ferraris are found, and the murders are well known, Two Honduran newspapers, Tiempo and La Prensa, as well as um, a later account by a reporter for the Transnational Institute. 
those journalists and papers uncovered what one of them referred to as a cadre of military collaborators with respect to initially the Ferrari kidnapping and murders, but more importantly, it demonstrated a slow process. This is again quoting from one of the the articles, a slow process whereby military collusion in drug trafficking and smuggling operations throughout the country came to light. One of the most important military connections for Matabayasteros during this time was a Colonel Leonidas Torres Arias. He was the head of the Honduran intelligence service known as G2, which essentially was the Honduran equivalent of the CIA. The Tiempo articles on the Ferrari's murders say that those murders were planned from Torres's G2 intelligence office in conjunction with Matabayasteros. But they said Torres Arias's connection and his involvement in Mata's operations was much more extensive. The colonel was, in addition to you know a, a powerful ally for just getting rid of eliminate or um, rivals, the colonel was a go-between for official contacts with other officials in other countries, most notably a Panamanian colonel by the name of Manuel Noriega. Apparently, Torres Arias and Noriega met in the late 1970s and Torres Arias and Noriega um, were initially backed by the CIA, which in turn turned a blind eye to their involvement in drug trafficking due to their anti-communist credentials. In other words, Torres Arias was a key broker who provided Matabayasteros, you know, a way into the military bureaucratic elite in both Honduras and Panama, which allowed the breadth and scope of his operations to increase dramatically. It's said that um, Torres Arias, even after he left um, his official position, we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes, um, continued to provide a key link by uh, between Matabayasteros and the Honduran military well into the mid to late 1980s. The trafficking activities in this area at this time often took place, and we've talked about this several times, either with the support of approval of or just a blind eye from 
U.S. intelligence officials because at this time, the CIA and other intelligence agencies of the U.S. were really involved and and deeply enmeshed in a full-fledged proxy war against Nicaragua's Sandinista government. The war against the Sandinistas, the fight of communism in general, took precedence for the United States. And as a result, there was an avenue that really allowed for the movement of drugs north and south, drugs and weapons, I should add, often under the supervision or the orders and direction of Matabiasteros and his military allies. Uh, you know, there are reports that in the early 1980s, Torres Arias and Noriega were running drugs and trafficking weapons to Salvadorian insurgents, that they had clandestine um, landing strips in Honduras, used planes that were taking weapons to the Contras, and trafficking narcotics. Keep that in mind. Okay. Let's let me go back to that. Clandestine landing strips in Honduras that used planes that were taking weapons to the Contras and trafficking narcotics. Doesn't that sound a lot like the allegation of the infamous but maybe never seen uh, Rancho Veracruz that comes up around the Camarena case? Query, just as an aside, are they the same? Are they different? Does this in any way impact that? Okay, but with that aside, um, at the heart of U.S. assistance to Contras was an airline known as Setco. It is asserted that Setco was owned by Matabiasteros. Setco further provided connections between Mata, the Honduran military, and the U.S. government, and was directly and significantly involved in moving supplies to the Contras along the Honduran-Nicaragua border. State Department records show that Setco was paid $185,924 by the State Department. The funds came from the State Department going to Setco in the period from January through August of 1986. Uh, The Kerry Report, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee's inquiry into the U.S. support for the Contras says... Beginning in 1984, Setco was the principal company used by the Contras to to transport supplies and personnel for the FDN, that was a Contra faction, carrying at least a million rounds of ammunition, food, uniforms, and other military supplies for the Contras from 1983 through 1985. 
Setco was also used to move drugs north to his allies and friends in Mexico, including but not limited to Felix Gallardo. The Carrier Report also says a 1983 customs investigative report states that Setco is headed by Juan Ramon Mataballesteros, a Class 1 DEA violator. According to the DEA, Setco Aviation is a corporation formed by American businessmen who are dealing with Mata and are smuggling narcotics into the United States. Interestingly enough, just as an aside, in 1983, the DEA offices in or office in Honduras was closed for, quote, budgetary reasons, close quote. Uh, you can read between the lines on that if you want to. Kerry Commission noted and said, instead of moving decisively to close down the drug trafficking by stepping up the DEA presence in the country and using the foreign assistance in the United States. The United States closed the DEA office and appears to have ignored the issue. The U.S. assistance also can be credited, if you want to use that word, with emboldening some elements in the Honduran military. 1984, the FBI seized $40 million worth of cocaine on a South Florida airstrip. The money, according to the uh, FBI, was part of a plot to assassinate uh, then Honduran President Roberto Suarez Cordova. One time, a man was arrested in the United States and implicated uh, in elements or actions against the government in Chile at the time. So lots lots going on. Um, and again, one more from the Kerry Commission. It appears that a compelling factor in United States-Honduran relations was support for American policy in the region, especially support for the Contra War. As long as the Honduran government provided that support, the other issues were of secondary importance. Okay. So we'd seen that before, right? That in, in a variety of, of ways, the the key focus in Central America at that time was the Contra War against the Sandinista government and more broadly, anti-communism efforts. That was the key mission of the Reagan administration in particular in that area. In um, the early 1980s, 1984 specifically, Mata was involved, uh, was indicted, excuse me, for his role in a smuggling ring that kind of centered out of Van Nuys, California. The, Discovery of the ring in 1981 resulted in the seizure of 114 pounds of cocaine, $1.9 million in cash, and based on ledgers found with the drugs, the prosecution in 
the indictments estimated that the ring had generated $73 million in just nine months. $73 million in 1981. In 1985, Mata was again indicted for his role in another cocaine smuggling ring. This one operating in Arizona and Southern California, primarily Arizona. Uh, he The ring was discovered in 1984, resulted in the seizure of a ton of cocaine and $7.8 million in cash. Things started to change for Mata after the murder of DEA agent Kiki Cambreno. I'm going to talk next week about the specifics around that. So we'll put that to the side for a minute. At one point, it's fairly certain that Mata was in Mexico City at or about the time of Agent Camarena's abduction. May have been in Guadalajara at that time. We'll talk about that next week, too. At some point, he's able to flee Mexico City where, and then goes to uh, Madrid, Spain. Later returns to Colombia. And he is located there and arrested by Colombian authorities. In prison, he does a couple of nice things. One, um, he orders the assassination of the, the warden of the prison, which is carried out. And he pays about $2 million in bribes. Shortly after making these bribes, he's able to escape. And he makes his way back to Honduras. Uh, once in Honduras, he um, reestablishes, you know, his connections with the military. He's incredibly wealthy, and he lived uh, pretty much without fear of arrest or extradition. He had bodyguards. He lived in lu- in luxury, uh, and um, you know, he, he really continued his life as it was at this time. It's said that Mata was the largest private employer in the nation of Honduras. I've called him, in some respects, the Escobar of Honduras in the sense that he had a devoted following amongst a lot of the public because of the businesses he created because of the people he employed because of some of the charitable things he did for a long time. Escobar had that, even though that tide may have changed with the bombing of the airline and some other things that he did. Things started getting a little bit precarious for Mata by about 1988 um, around that time, the U.S. government was really putting pressure on the military establishment that ruled Honduras to arrest Ballesteros. Um, the, there are reports, denied reports, but there is a report that at about this time, the American ambassador 
threatened to publish a list of all military officers involved in the drug trade if the government didn't arrest Mata. The noose got even tighter um, in 1988 or so um, when his benefactor, Colonel Arias, was arrested. And we'll talk about that uh, more in just a second. He, um, he being Mata, went for a jog. It shows how you know unconcerned he was in April 1988. As he comes back from the jog, he is taken into custody by Honduran Special Forces, U.S. Marshals. Uh, I think there's U.S. DEA involved. He's then taken to an airbase and flown to the Dominican Republic. As soon as he enters Dominican airspace, he's given over to the American marshals under the pretext that he didn't have a passport and he's um, returned to the U S where he's been, or, or, you know, delivered to the U S where he has been um, in prison ever since. We'll talk about that a little bit more um, next week as well. Mata's um, arrest and capture has some interesting components to it. He um, alleges that he was tortured while on the plane uh, going to the Dominican Republic. There are great stories, which we'll talk about a little bit more next week, but there are stories that he tried to bribe the officials who were delivering him um, from his compound in Honduras to the airstrip. Like I say, we we could talk about those a little bit more. There's some interesting details with respect to his arrest that I also want to talk about when we talk about kind of his legacy. I said that Mata had a deep following in and, and kind of was a beloved figure in some respects in the country of Honduras. The day after his extradition, um, as many as 2,000 students from the National Autonomous University marched on the U.S. Embassy to protest. Protests lasted two days. The embassy was set on fire, and five students were actually killed. As we've talked about before, 1990, May 1990, thereabouts, he's put on trial for the kidnapping, not the murder, but the kidnapping of uh, Agent Camarena. A couple of, of key pieces of evidence against him. The testimony uh, from Hector Cervantes Santos, the dubious nature of which we've discussed before. He testified, he being Cervantes, testified that Mata was present when the kidnapping was discussed at um, Barba's house. In addition, FBI forensic specialist Michael Malone testified that hair and fiber evidence at Lope de Vega tied Mata to the Lope de Vega house. We've also talked about the dubious nature of Malone's testimony, right? 
Um, Cervantes, as we discussed before, recanted his testimony. And, and frankly, he recanted, unrecanted, re-recanted. There was a hearing in 1998 uh, where Madad had requested a new trial based on Cervantes's recantations. Um, the hearing essentially said Cervantes's recantations weren't reliable, so no new trial. I find that a little bit dubious. <laughs> you know, the the recantations aren't reliable, but somehow the testimony itself is, you know, be that as it may. In 2014, the um, DOJ Inspector General determined that Malone's forensic methods were not reliable either, modified for a new trial, and in 2017, his convictions on the kidnapping charges were vacated and a new trial was ordered. In 2018, December 2018, the prosecution said that it would drop the kidnapping charges. By this time, Mata was already serving life sentences without parole for drug violations relating to the Van Nuys and the Arizona drug arrests and indictments that we talked about earlier. Today, um, Mata is in uh, federal prison. He is in Springfield, Missouri, and he continues to have um, a life sentence and without the possibility of parole. And we're going to talk about that a lot more in next week's episode. So what are we going to talk about next week? Number one, we're going to talk more about the Camarena case and his involvement or potential involvement in the Camarena case. Number two, we're going to talk a little bit more about his role in the Guadalajara cartel, as it's commonly referred to. Three, we're going to talk about his legacy, both in Honduras and with respect to drug trafficking. Uh, in general, kind of between Colombia, Mexico, and the United States. We're also going to look a little bit more at some of the Iran-Contra type allegations. And then I'm going to share some information. A, a while back, a few months back, I had a phone conversation with Mata from his prison. And I will share some of what he said and discuss what that may or may not mean uh, going forward for Mata and for our understanding of the events around that time. So that's what's coming up next week. I hope you got something out of this kind of brief recap of Mata's role in really increasing and facilitating that trafficking between Colombia and Mexico and the United States. So we'll talk about him next week. also want to note, next week I'm doing an interview with a former DEA or former FBI agent, excuse me, who has some interesting um, stories and discussions and insights about MS-13 and their connections to uh, Mexico and other places and to drug trafficking. That episode will air two weeks from today, assuming that doesn't end up put us 
too close to uh, Christmas, but that'll be coming up. Lots and lots of things going on. Tons of information in the newsletter. Again, free newsletter comes out every Sunday morning. If you want to be on the mailing list, all I need is an email and you'll get it every Sunday in your inbox. So that, my friends, is Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for today. We will talk more about Mata next week, and I hope everyone has a wonderful week.